I'm reading again at uh, verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now it's not maybe um, immediately obvious when we read the passage, but these verses are full of appointments and appearances. And if we look very, very closely, you'll see that there are four appointments brought before us. The first one is the one that's most explicitly there, and that's our appointment with death. Your appointment and mine, because it is appointed for men to die once. The second appointment is Christ's appointment with death, because just as it was appointed for us to die once, so Christ is offered once. And he's offered by appointment too. He dies by appointment. So we have an appointment with death. Christ has an appointment with death. The third appointment is our appointment with judgment. Because again, we're told in verse 27 that just as it is appointed for men to die once, after that, there is the judgment, which is, of course, an appointment too. And connected with our appointment at the judgment seat, Christ has an appointment there too. He must appear a second time, apart from sin, unto salvation, and deal with sin, for once and for all, at the judgment seat. We meet him there. He is appointed there as a judge. We are appointed there to be examined. So we have an appointment with death. Christ has an appointment with death. We have an appointment at the judgment seat. And Christ has an appointment at the judgment seat. Now I want to look at all these with you. Now if we're quite long in the first and at the second, uh, I want to assure you that they are longer than the third and the fourth. Now it's obvious that there's no danger of any of us missing any of these appointments because we all appear at them. We will appear where we are appointed to die, obviously. Christ will also appear in order to die. We will appear at the judgment seat of God and Christ will also appear a second time at the judgment seat of God. Appointments and appearance. Now let's look at these four appointments and the four appearances. And we'll begin where the writer begins, and that's with our appointment with death. It is appointed, he says, for men once to die. Now death, as you know, viewed strictly as a physical thing, is just the separation of our soul from our body. And it's an event that we all fear by nature, and rightly so. Now, everyone fears it. It's not just the king of terrors, but as someone said, it is also the terror of kings. It's a great level of death, uh, because it doesn't respect anything like wealth or color or privilege or anything like that. The dead 
small and great, will stand at the judgment seat of God. And on that day, there is no small and great. Now, people have different ways of coping with death. The most obvious way is, of course, to ignore it. And there are many ways in which you can try to do that. As well as ignoring it, some people try and control it. And, of course, the whole movement towards uh, assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia or whatever you call it is a means whereby we can gain control of life so that you can end life when you choose. The element of uncertainty over it, the, the uncertainty perhaps in connection with what might lie beyond it or whatever, all uncertainty seem to be taken away if only you can gain control of it. By gaining control, it seems to lose a lot of its terror and its power. Now, of course, you can't really control death, but nonetheless, that is what assisted dying tries to do. I wish to be in charge of when and how I die. That is really what the advocate of assisted suicide says. Another way, of course, to cope with death is to simply laugh at it or to minimize it. That's another way, I suppose, of trying to get some kind of control over it. And, of course, there is a, a tendency now at funerals to tell people not to mourn. Some people leave specific instructions that they don't want to be mourned. They want people to have a good time and to celebrate. I was um, hearing a program some time ago on the radio where uh, a funeral director was speaking and saying that the the most significant change that he had seen over the last 20 years was in the kind of funeral that people wanted. Uh, there would be instructions, for example, for everybody to wear pink or everybody to wear white or something of that kind. And there, there was to be no weeping, no tears shed or things of that kind. Um, in fact, the funnier the occasion, the better. The more humorous the stories, the better because nobody really wants to consider death. <coughs> and if people sadly choose a cremation rather than a burial, of course it's all behind a curtain, where the reality of the consuming of the body by fire is hidden from view, and everyone celebrates and life goes on, <coughs> except, of course, for the person who's dead. Whatever that person is enduring, people may focus on the body, but where is the soul? And the body indeed may be burned with fire, but what if the soul is burned with something worse? Of course, the other way to try and cope with death is to rationalize it or to naturalize it, <coughs> as though somehow it's just an inevitable thing. It's just part of life death, part of the meaningless process of evolutionary life in this world. It just happens. Some just deal with it. Uh, here you are, and then you come. You become part of the earth, your nutrients will nourish the earth, and so you may be seen reappearing in a flower or in a tree. And in all these ways, death is not to be feared anymore. It's nothing. You close your eyes, and it's gone. Well, if only that were true. <clears throat> if it was true, I can see why you would be comforted. The funny thing is that you probably find it difficult to believe it's true yourself. There's a sense within all of us that there's something indestructible about us. In one sense, that is true. 
We are all too destructible physically, but the reality is that we were made in the image of God. We have a substance within us called soul or spirit which endures. It will always live. And we do pass beyond death. Our soul survives the destruction of the body. And this word appointment, of course, immediately pours cold water on any idea that your death is just a natural, inevitable thing. It is appointed to men once to die. That's very different from saying it just happens to all men that they die, because it is an appointment. That word appointment, in other words, lifts death out of the realm of nature and into the hands of God. You die because God says you die. You die because God commands your death, just as he commanded your life. And that's why it does feel unnatural to think of your own death. You were made to live, you were not made to die. The original man and the woman that came from him, Adam and Eve, were meant to live and to live forever. And the children they would have were also meant to live and to live forever. That is why there is a feeling within you of something, of possessing something that is just not meant to cease existence. I don't know if you've ever tried to conceive of yourself as not existing. I'm sure you probably have. And I'm sure you find it possible to think of a time when you did not exist. I'm sure it's harder to think of a time when you won't. Isn't that strange? But the reason for it is because you were made originally as a psychosomatic unity. And death is an unnatural thing. The ripping apart of your body and soul is a thing that you abhor fundamentally. And you abhor it fundamentally because it was not meant to be. Death is a sad thing. Death is something that has marred the creation of God. It has marred every single man, woman and child because death was never meant to be. And, of course, it's unnatural because it is penal. It is the result of sin, and it is part of God's punishment of sin, or God's judgment of it. And the fact of the matter is that we bring death onto ourselves. The soul that sins, it dies. Far from being natural, it's absolutely unnatural, and there's a sense in which we all commit suicide. We all commit suicide by sinning. By sinning, we choose death, and indeed, we condemn our own soul. But of course it's God's appointment. That word reminds us that our death is absolutely in God's hands, completely so. He sets, as Paul says, the bounds of our habitations in space and time, exactly where you live and when you live, that's this appointment, who you were born to, where exactly you were born, that's his appointment. He orders, as Ecclesiastes tells us, the day of our birth and the day of our death. And that's tied down to the very time and place. The appointment is that precise. That on such and such a day, at such and such a time, and at such and such a location, you die. That's already appointed. Uh, you need to wonder about it. Well, you need to wonder about it in one way, but in terms of the thing happening, it's there, it's in the book, it's written. 
Just like the day of your birth was written, so is the day of your death. And you have absolutely no idea when that will be. Now, of course, normally, and I often say this at funerals, but normally when we make appointments in this life, it's by mutual consent. You make appointments with doctors or with dentists or with uh, a bank manager or whatever it is. You make an appointment by mutual arrangement. And normally in these circumstances you're free to change the appointment, to cancel the appointment if you want, or to reschedule the appointment. Sometimes you forget the appointment, and maybe the consequences are not even all that serious if you forget. But of course this is completely different. The Bible tells us that we will appear at this point of death. You will arrive exactly at the point of space in which God has appointed your death and at that point in time. Prior to that, you're indestructible. After that, there's nothing you can do. God said it's not a movable thing. In that respect, it's only God's diary that matters. In fact, you may well have a a double booking in that respect. You might well anticipate doing something else in that place or in another place. And at that very time, you may indeed have something in your diary in connection with it. You can say, well, I intend to be on a family holiday at such and such a time. I intend to leave, perhaps on Monday, to go away. God says, Sunday night, you're dying. That's in the appointment book. doesn't matter what's in yours. That's in God's. You may have something like the gym tomorrow at 5 p.m. And God says, foolish, foolish man, or you fool, as he said to the rich man, this night your soul shall be required of you. God's appointment. Your plans give way. God has already ordained exactly where you will be and at what time when you breathe your last in this world. You will appear there. No force can stop it. Only God knows where and when. Strangely, the passage here tells us that we are appointed to die once. Verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once. Why does he emphasize that? You could say, well, would it not be enough to say that Death is appointed for all of us. Well, no, he said once. Just as Christ was offered once. Christ dies once. So we die once. Why? Well, because we only have one life to live. And we can't come back and try and do it again. The idea that some people have, of course, that there is a second chance or a second opportunity. No, you live once and therefore you die once. There's lots of things you'd like to rerun in life. I've met more than one person who said that I would really like to go back and start again with my family. Knowing what I know now, I would really like to go back. Well, of course, in some ways it might be very difficult, but in other ways, I'd like to go back and do it all differently. Well, you can't do that. Uh, Some people may feel like that about their whole lives. Well, knowing what I know now and seeing what I see now, I I wish I could go back and do it differently. You can't go back and do it differently. 
And when the point of death comes, that's an irrelevance. As the scripture says, as the tree falls, so it lies. He who dies just will be just forever. He who dies unjust will be unjust forever. You've lived your life. You've had your chances. You've had your opportunities. You've had your privileges. All the possibilities, everything have been, and they've gone. And they're never coming back. They're never coming back. You will die just once. One set of chances and one set of opportunities. And you take these chances or you blow them. Once you blow them, you're not getting them back. You die once. So that's our first appointment. It's an appointment with death. Now I can't leave it without urging you to remember that you've got it. You may say, well I don't know when it is. I would say to you, that's the point. That's the point. If you know that this appointment could be any time that it's scheduled and it's not a movable feast, you'd better get ready for it. No. No. There is only one way in which you can get ready for that appointment, to prepare to meet your God, and that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life being transformed, your soul being saved, so that you're ready to die. Death will come to you whether you're ready or not, but it's best to be ready. And it is an astonishing thing that we can give so much time and attention to how we look for an appointment, how we appear, our external appearance, not just external appearance, but we can prepare for an appointment, we can study so that we answer the right question, say the right thing, and yet we're not ready to meet God at all. When the fact of the matter is that he could come tonight. The appointment could be tonight. Well, of course you think, oh, well, chances are it's not. What chances are it's not? Who says it's not? What kind of chances are you talking about? This appointment's in God's book. He knows what it is. And the rich man to whom God said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you, didn't have a clue that morning that he was going to die that night. I suppose if you had said to that fool in the morning, you think you're going to die tonight? He said, probably not. Well, he was wrong. If you say it yourself, probably not, you might be wrong. You can play Russian roulette as long as you like with this. If eternity is real, if heaven is real and hell is real, I wouldn't play with it for one second in my life. Stupid enough to do that. I'm not going to pretend that I was wise enough to sort that out quickly. But I'll tell you this. Knowing what I know now, and you knowing what you know now, don't play with this for a moment long. <coughs> when this appointment comes, it finds you as you are, and there's no going back, no second chance, no other life to live. The second appointment that's spoken of here is Christ's appointment with death. In verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, after that the judgment, so Christ similarly has an appointment which involved him being offered once to bear the sins of many. It's appointed for us to die, it's appointed for Christ to be offered. His offering there is a reference to his dying because his dying is an offering. He is appointed to be offered in other words, he is appointed 
to die. So Christ's death like ours is an appointment. As um, Peter said in Acts chapter 2 when he was talking about the cross, he was preaching the cross on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in power. You'll notice, of course, the great change that came upon Peter. Um, <clears throat> he tells us that uh, in connection with Christ's crucifixion, he tells us that uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested by God to you, in other words, God proved uh, who he was by miracles, wonders, and signs, him being delivered, that's to, to death and to the cross, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you took by your lawless hands, you crucified him and you put him to death. Now that's, that text is often shown or cited as, um, as a proof of the way in which our actions work together with God's appointment. Um, God's predestination of all things takes into account the sinful behavior of men. So the fact that these men took him with their wicked hands, crucified him and put him to death, doesn't negate the overarching fact that God determinedly purposed that to be so, as well as foreknew it. You'll notice it doesn't just say that God foreknew that would happen, but that God determinedly purposed that to happen. So God appointed the death of Christ, and he appointed it in all its details. In other words, on the month of Nisan, at Passover time, in 30 AD, and at 3 p.m., outside of Jerusalem, on the piece of ground called a skull, you will die. At exactly 3 p.m. And you will die the cursed death of the cross. That's Christ's appointment with death. Now let me say a couple of things about that appointment. The first is that unlike your appointment with death and mine, this is a mutual appointment. With us, God writes it in the book, end of story. With Christ it is very, very different. Because this time and place of death is something that was agreed in the heavenly inter-Trinitarian council between Father, Son and Spirit before the foundations of this world were laid. And it was an agreement. The time and the place of the Son's death was an agreement between the Father and the Son as equal parties to which the Son was not obligated as an act of obedience to the Father but the Son voluntarily entered into it as your representative and man. And the, the mutual nature of this appointment is something that Christ actually refers to obliquely. I mean, he doesn't do it directly, but incidentally, he refers to it at various points. He, he almost inserts it just to kind of tell people that he's always in control of the situation, even when he appears not to be in control of the situation. Sometimes he does say it very starkly and, and very emphatically that he's acquiescing to his death, even though it's necessary from one perspective, he's acquiescing to it from another 
perspective. I could call on my father, who would send twelve legions of angels to extricate me from this. But how then, he says, shall the scriptures be fulfilled? The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? But if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But it's a cup that he had agreed to take. And, of course, when he's been captured, I remember drawing your attention to this when we were thinking of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the, the squad of soldiers and the detachment of temple officers came to capture him. And he stood forward from the garden with his bloody sweat still upon him and said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And we're told that Jesus said, I am he. In the Greek, literally, I am the divine name. And we're told that they all fell back to the ground. Now, that's an astonishing thing. They all fell back to the ground. As I mentioned then, it is equally astonishing, more astonishing that they got up and carried on with the arrest. But one thing that showed, as well as showing Christ's divinity very plainly, that he had the power to knock them to the ground, is it does show his voluntariness. In other words, I could stop these proceedings. You're not seizing me because you have the power to seize me. You're seizing me because I have relinquished that power. I have given, sorry, I have given you that power. I could easily forbid you from doing what you're doing, but that you might know that I am yielding myself into your hands, he strikes them on the ground. And if they were wise enough to see it, they would recognize that they didn't seize him, but he was seized by them. He put himself into their hands. It's a mutual appointment. Of course, it's an appointment that he knew as well. That's a different between, difference between ourselves and him. Um, he knew really, from as soon as he could comprehend the scriptures, exactly how and where he was to die. At the hands of the church authorities, outside the city of Jerusalem. He knew that it would be done according to the Passover regulations. He knew how long his ministry would be. And that's why he spoke at various points in his ministry about the hour is not yet. The hour is not yet. My hour has not yet come. And then suddenly, on this perhaps fourth Passover of his ministry, the hour has arrived. How does he know all that? He knows all that because of who he is. Because of the openness of understanding. Because of his extraordinary humility. His extraordinary insight into the truth. His receptiveness to the teaching of his father. So that as he's reading the scriptures all the time as a youth, they pierced my hands and feet. They gave me vinegar to drink when as my thirst was great. That's me. That's me. That's me. He knows it's by crucifixion. He knows he will go to the cross at 9 a.m. He knows he will expire at 3 p.m. It's an appointment that he knows. He... Um, he referred to it in, in some detail during the last few months of his ministry. Um, he began to teach what was going to happen to him just after the transfiguration. Um, he had taught them who he was and now he was telling them what was going to happen to him. 
and uh, we're told that he began to teach them then that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That's in the church itself. He's going to be rejected. He must be killed and after three days rise again. You remember what happened the first time he taught that. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Not long afterwards, he introduces it a second time. He taught them as they passed through Galilee towards the end of his ministry. He broaches it a second time. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. Here he's conscious, you see, of what's going on in the heart of Judas. He's conscious of it. He speaks of it as already happening. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. What's the response to that the second time? They did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. And of course, I mean, your response to that and my response too would be, what part of that is difficult to understand? Well, it's all difficult to understand when you've somehow been conditioned into thinking that the Messiah will live forever. They must have thought that he was speaking figuratively, but the death was not going to be a real death. It's not going to be a real suffering. Something else, spiritual language that they couldn't quite understand. So just a little while after that, he broaches it a third time. As they were going up to Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus went before them and they were amazed. We often wondered at that statement, by the way, because it doesn't tell us why they were amazed. What was it that was so amazing? But he took the twelve aside and began to tell them again what would happen. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. No response this time at all. Nothing to say. Were they filtering it out? I don't know. But one thing we know is that he knew his appointment. He knew the hour. He knew the place. And, you know, it's a difficult thing to walk up to death when you know it's coming. It's it's a mercy in a way that God hasn't told ourselves when it's coming. It's enough to deal with it, I suppose, at the time. It's another thing for a young man, for a boy like this, to grow up all his life long knowing that at a certain point in space outside Jerusalem, at a certain time between 12 and 3 p.m., he's going to endure the flames of hell. That must have cast a terrible shadow, knowing that the wrath of God was going to fall upon him in such an awful way, a cup to be drunk that no man ever drank in this life. Cast its shadow, he knew it was there, And it was an appointment that he wouldn't avoid. You'll notice too that this appointment with death is actually called an offering. Verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ. Now you'll notice it doesn't say died once, although that's true. But it chooses another word. So Christ was offered once. To bear the sins of many. That's telling us that his appointment with death is an appointment with a sacrificial death. 
and he knows it to be an appointment with a sacrificial day. The, the word offering is related to the, to the whole act of uh, sacrifice and slaughter. The offering of the, an animal, the killing of an animal, the offering of the blood of an animal to cover the sins of the people. Now, even, even godly Jews knew, like we know, that there's no value in the blood of a bull and a goat. <coughs> if, a blood, if the blood of a bull and a goat could really de- deal with sins, then sins aren't what we all, always thought they were. They knew that it was the blood of somebody else. It was the suffering, certainly, of somebody else. But this is a sacrificial r- ritual. Christ knows that the death he's going to die is actually an offering that is going to be offered once. He dies by appointment as an offering for you and for me. That's why it says here in verse 28 that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And in verse 26, at the end of verse 26, After the semicolon, we read that, But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So by his offering, he makes atonement and he reconciles it, reconciles us to God. Now, you'll notice here that Christ also dies once, or is offered once. Just as we die once, he's offered once. And that raises the same question. Why is it said of Christ that he is offered once? Well, let me again say two things. Because I think there are two reasons why this onceness, this uniqueness of the death is mentioned. The first is because, like ourselves, the Lord has only one life to live. He has only, reverently speaking, one opportunity to get it right. He has a life to live perfectly and he has a death to die perfectly. We sometimes speak of living well, and we speak of dying well. The importance of dying in faith, just as we live in faith. Well, the Lord has to live well, and the Lord has to die well. If he fails, if he falls, if he sins, even in his thought process, even for a moment, he has broken the covenant, and as your representative and mine, he's lost the cause And we're lost with him. And the death that he dies will avail nothing for himself. And it will avail nothing for us. Because for him too, there's no second chance. There's no going back and saying, well, let's start that all over again. Let's be born again of a virgin. Let's again live a life of probation and a life of purity and a life of obedience. And hopefully next time on the cross... I won't allow my thoughts to run away with me. I won't think one thing out of place. No, I'm not saying that such a thing could happen to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, of course, the God-man. Nonetheless, I'm saying that that's what would happen. He's got one life to live, one set of opportunity and chances, and he must take them too. He's got to die once, and he's got to die well. One life to offer to God. But that takes me to the next thing, and that is this, that he dies once because, having died properly, there is no no offering to make again. If his death is an offering for sin, then if that death really works, 
if his offering is a sacrifice, then what else is he going to appoint? The high priest went in every year on the Day of Atonement in October. Every year he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer the offering and he would sprinkle the blood. And if it was all so effective, why is it necessary next year? And the writer to the Hebrews says, the fact that it's done year after year, he says, is in itself a testimony to the fact that it doesn't work. It only works insofar as it prefigures something greater than itself. Which is what? The true high priest, bringing in the blood, his life and his death, into the presence of God in the more perfect tabernacle above, not made with the hands of men, but where God's glory resides. He went in there once, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because God is happy with it. God was pleased with it. That's the marvelous thing. There are people who speak ill of the cross. There are people who say, well, what kind of God is that? Or what, what kind of death is that? What is it that's going on there? And they're very displeased at the ugliness of it and the, the bloodiness of it. And what point is there in one person dying? How can that possibly atone for the sins of anybody else? Well, however people view it, God views it like that. God is pleased with the sacrifice of his son. Pleased with that offering, and he asks for no more. If you tonight are to come into the presence of God, it's by that offering. You're pleading the power of that blood, the power of that death, the power of that life to cover your sins, to cleanse them away, to make atonement for you, so that you are reconciled with God. Nothing else would do it. No other offering. You can give your own life for God. doesn't matter. Why? Because your life is tainted. So is mine. Suppose I was going to die for God tonight. It doesn't do anything. Only one man's death helps me. One man's death can help you. And that's the death of this man. Just as it is appointed to all men to die once... Praise God, it was appointed for this man to die once, and only once, and to die as an offering. Remember what I said about the various lengths of time. The third appointment here is our appointment with judgment. Again, in the words of our text, as <laughs> it is appointed for men to die once, and or but after this, the judgment. That's another appointment. Your death is an appointment, well so is the judgment an appointment. And again, it is an appointment fixed by God. Of whom Peter again says that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appointed that he fixed, fixed, an appointment fixed by God. You're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. So am I. As Paul says, we must all appear there. It's no wonder people try and uh, take the sting out of death and try and take the sting out of eternity and so on because this is a solemn, solemn thought. It's a solemn thought that someday you're going to stand in the presence of God whose eyes like a flame of fire will just blaze right through you and through me so that the secrets of our own hearts are opened up. And of course, we will be there. As Paul says, we must all appear 
the judgment seat of Christ. For many of us, perhaps, we will already have been some length of time either in heaven or, I pray not, in hell. Because the judgment, the day of judgment doesn't follow your death immediately. The day of judgment is whatever day God has appointed it to be. There have been people already a long time either in heaven or in hell. And make no mistake, they know what the day of judgment is going to be like. Those who are in heaven just now know that when the day of judgment comes, they have no need to be ashamed before God. They have already been in the blessedness of glory. And when they gather at that judgment seat, they're already robed in white. They already know who they are and who they're going to be forever. So do those who are summoned from hell itself to appear before the judgment seat. They know the verdict's not going to change. One thing they've learnt in hell, if they didn't learn it upon the earth, is that there is no other opportunity. There's no way that they're going to be changed and transformed and transfigured. For one thing, they're going to be assembled on the left hand of the Lord, wearing what they wear and appearing how they appear, just as the others are going to be assembled on the right hand of God before the judgment is even carried out. Before there's an examination, they already know exactly who they are and what the judgment will pronounce. The judgment is only a cosmic declaration of what everybody knows to be true. And on that day, God will not only be just, but he will be seen to be just. And it's one reason for a public day of judgment that God will be seen to be just. Just in the salvation of his own people, equally just in the destruction and punishment of those who are not. We don't know the day. Maybe it's even true that those in heaven don't know the day. In Revelation chapter 5, we have a picture of the souls of some believers who have been martyred on earth. And these souls are crying out to God and saying, How long until our blood is avenged? And God tells them just to rest a while. Rest a while. That's all. Doesn't give them a date. Doesn't give them a time. Even though, though they're in the holiness of heaven. Maybe just now it's the case that those who are in heaven don't know the date, don't know the time. All we know is that, as Paul says in Acts 17.31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained. Now, when Paul tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he doesn't just mean that we um, that we're going to be there. That's how we're liable to interpret that text. We must all appear there. In other words, you're going to be there and I'm going to be there. Um, that's fine, but that's not what it's saying. The word, the Greek word behind appearing, the Greek word that's translated appearing, means to be exposed. It means to be made manifest. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, is that we must all be exposed or revealed or manifested at the judgment seat of Christ. The idea in the Greek language is taking something that's hidden and bringing it out into the open. That's a thought. We're told that some people wear their hearts on their sleeves. <clears throat> you can tell uh, um, 
what they're thinking easily. They wear their inside out. Well, the idea here is that the inside comes out. The real man and the real woman. You don't really know at the end of the day who I am, and I don't really know who you are. We make a judgment of charity about each other, and rightly so. And sometimes we can be pretty convinced. But the fact of the matter is, as Paul says, there is a day when the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed. When you're ripped inside out and I'm ripped inside out, there's no hiding place on that day. That's when God says, this woman really loved me. And you can see this here. And that's when God says, this man is not mine and never was. Depart from me. I never knew you, even though I preached in your street. And even though you did many mighty works using my name, I never knew you because here you are, a worker of iniquity. That's you and that's me. On the day when the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed. Now tell me, do you expect to stand or fall on that day? I'm sure that even if you're a Christian here, the very thought of it does get to you. You know, sometimes people say, they can say to me, are you afraid of death or are you afraid of the judgment of God? And one level I might say, well, I know him in whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him, that is my soul, until that day, in the light of that great day of judgment. On the other hand, there's something about this day that terrifies the life out of everybody, believer or unbeliever, and so it should. After all, when Paul says, We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. What does he say next? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What he means by that is we just preach. We tell them the truth. We tell them the reality of death and the reality of judgment. Because we know it to be a terror. It is in itself, objectively considered, a terrible thing. Even if we are reconciled to it. Because we know Christ is on our side. And as well as being the judge, he's our advocate. But objectively considered, it is a terrible thing to stand before the judge of all the earth, knowing that his verdict will be either eternal life or eternal death. And on that day, the truth, of course, will out. And it's a staggering thing to remember that there are only two categories of people. Now, when you think of the endless varieties of human uh, nature the differences in psychology the difference in culture and customs and in behaviour and so on you think well surely there are going to be more than two categories, no, no no there are not, there are just the living and the dead, the Christians and the non-Christians, that's all there are oh well are there good people somewhere in between, no no, there's not there are the living who are alive because Christ lives in them And there are the dead because they've never changed from how they were born and they've rejected the gospel and chosen to live a sinless, godless life. And that's that's all you've got. Just two categories. The blessed and the cursed. It is appointed for men to die once and after that the judgment. Singular. You're only judged once too. Why are you judged once? Because you only live once and because you die once. It follows that you're only judged once. After all, there's only one judge competent to hear your case anyway. I mean, can you examine my life and pronounce me good or bad? 
Can I tonight see into the depths of your heart and pronounce you good and bad? No, I tell you I can't. Is there any power that can do that? Only one. Only one judge. There's only one judge who can sit on this tribunal before which every single occupant of this planet passes. Only one person competent to sit on that tribunal. He's competent to hear the case. He's competent to decide it because he has all knowledge and wisdom of every single man, woman and child that he has created. There's going to be no lack of evidence at that court case. There's going to be no bribery of the judge, no corruption. There's going to be no miscarriage in the verdict. There's going to be no appeal allowed from that court because there is no higher court. There's going to be no retrial when the verdict is announced. It's announced. One judgment. Single judgment. And if you hear on that day, if you find yourself in the wrong crowd that day and you hear that voice saying, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire that was prepared originally for the devil and for his angels. You know, once you've heard that voice, there's no going back. No parole. There's no reduction of your sentence and good behavior. All these things that we're accustomed to in a society that creates an endless series of safety nets so that you're never quite lost and never quite without hope in this world. None of that's there. None of that is there. Unless you take hold of the hand of God that is reaching out to you, you're lost. And you are lost forever. The last appointment, very briefly, is the appointment Christ has at the same judgment seat. Of course, he's not there to be judged. There's a sense in which when he died once, he went straight into the presence of God respectfully, reverently, to be judged. Was his life consistent? Was his death perfect and pure? Yes, it was. He's not coming back to any judgment except to take his seat as the judge. He sits there at the great white throne. Of course, the preliminary to that appearance at the judgment seat is when he appears in his second coming. We're told here that he will appear a second time. He appeared the first time almost incognito as a child born into this world. That's the appearance of God manifest in the flesh. But here he is with the second coming. He will appear a second time. What does he do? Well, he calls the church. In fact, he awakens the dead, all the dead. There's a general resurrection of the just and of the lost. And he leads his own church into his own judgment seat. He summons the occupants of heaven. He summons the occupants of hell. He summons the bodies of those who have died. And all are reassembled, body and soul, into his own presence. Where he sits as judge of all the earth. He's not going to be late for that appointment either. He knows. You know, there was a time on earth when he did not know when that would be. He spoke of himself coming in his glory. 
And the disciples asked him when the time of his coming would be. And he said that uh, no one knew that time. Um, let, me, let me just quote it to you. And I'm, I'm finishing with this. Um, of that day and hour, the disciples had said, uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He gives them signs when Jerusalem will be destroyed. But when it comes to the second coming, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Now, without explicitly saying so, you couldn't get closer to explicitly saying, that's not been given me to know in my ministry, he's saying. Right now, it's not mine to know. It is the privilege of my Father who has kept it in reserve for himself. Now, I, I believe that that most certainly has changed. I, I spoke of any change that comes upon us and our knowledge and glory. There are many things that are hidden from the Lord's people in glory itself until the time comes for the revelation. Not so with the Saviour. The Saviour knows now in his glorified state the exact day and time of his coming. And uh, he describes it in Matthew 25 when he comes in his glory. Oh, how different that coming was from his first appearing in humiliation, laid in a feeding trough. Imagine being laid in an animal feeding trough. Second time, no shame, no humiliation, no incognito either in any respect, because not only shall every eye see him, but every eye will know exactly who he is. That's the amazing thing. You would think, well, how is that possible? What would be possible? Everybody knows exactly who's coming when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But he'll be at that judgment seat on the appointed day at the appointed hour, just as you'll be at the judgment seat on the appointed day and on the appointed hour. Now, only one, let me just close by saying that only one of these appointments has so far been kept. Christ has died once. And unless Christ returns before you die, the next appointment you're keeping is with death. Remember, it's in the book. You'll appear at that place. You'll be there at that time. When God says, that's it, it's over. It's over. Next appointment is after that, is at the judgment seat, where God in his glory shall appear, and the Lord Jesus Christ shall be there. To. Well, friends, what can I say? If all that is true, which it is, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to die and prepare to appear at the judgment seat. Unless you've looked after that, you've looked after nothing. Imagine writing a will and not looking after this. <coughs> Let us pray. <coughs> Gracious God, enable us to prepare for appointments that we most certainly will keep. Because of keeping of them is not in our hands, but in yours. The one who has appointed the bounds of our habitation, so that we cannot pass beyond. O oh, give us grace to see what lies ahead. For the prudent man foreseeth the evil and he hides himself. May we hide ourselves in Christ the Lord.
a refuge from the storm. In his name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 50 and the first version, that's the short meter version of the psalm. Psalm 50. Three, O God, shall surely come, and keep silence shall not he. And before him, and obviously he's coming here in judgment, because fire shall waste, and great storms shall round about him be. Unto the heavens clear he from above shall call, and to the earth likewise, that he may judge his people all. Together let my saints unto me gathered be those that by sacrifice have made a covenant with me. And then the heavens shall his righteousness declare, because the Lord himself is he by whom men judged are. Three to six, standing to seven. <coughs> Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.